Hi everyone, welcome back to Seek First Podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Rick Brown here. Take a minute to subscribe to Seek First Podcast. I really appreciate it. Stick around, I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready, grab your Bible, prepare your heart and your mind, let's roll. Nino asked me if I would come do the men's retreat. My favorite men's retreat is the life of Joseph. Reality is, is that the life of Joseph to me is such an incredible example of rising out of the ashes, going through the adversity and the hardships and the preparation that God has for his life. You and I are going through stuff that you have a choice at every single turn in your life. And every single turn you've got a choice. You cannot control the outward circumstances of your life, but you can respond in a way that is either in faith or unbelief. One will create a deeper walk with God, and one will create a hardness and a resentfulness in your heart. Viktor Frankl, of the survivor of the Holocaust camps, says this is the difference that he saw in all the people, that they would, they would either decide to respond in a way that, hey, I'm going to grow through this, or, and made him angry and bitter. Every single decision in your life. Some of you came up the mountain this weekend, and you're resentful for the woman that God has given you because of struggles that are going on. And it's her fault, or it's the boss's fault, or it's this person's fault, or it's that person's fault. You cannot control other people outside of yourself. You can only control your response. And there is no greater example in all the scriptures for all the difficulties he goes through than Joseph. And at every turn, Joseph chooses to trust God with the dreams that God had put in his heart. I heard a story of a a small prosperous village. They loved life. There was freedom. There was liberty. They were trading freely, and it was very prosperous. And a new government regime came in with their communist dictatorship. And as they came in, they began to uh, squish the free trade. They began to control people and tell them what to do. And they began to imprison people that were, from their perspective, not agreeing with their narrative. And so uh, a young man uh, spoke up, and he he was the only son of a father. They had a small farm, and that's how they lived and survived. Well, the young man wanted to stand up against these tyrannical leaders, so they threw him in jail on some trumped-up charges. And a drought came that spring in which there was no rain, and the only way to survive that year was to be able to plant the crops in their small little farm. Well, the sun had always been there. And now with the drought, the ground was too hard. The elderly father went out and tried to dig in the ground. He didn't have the strength. The ground was too hard. He wrote his son a letter in prison. said, son, I love you. You are a good son. But I don't think I'm going to be able to plant this year. The ground's too hard. I can't till it up. And so I'll probably starve to death with some of the other villagers this year. The son thought about this for a week or so, back and forth. He's going to his father a letter. He realizes that all of his mail is, is red. And so he writes his father a letter. He says, Dad, whatever you do, do not dig up any of the field because that's where the bodies are. 
the letter arrived and a hundred soldiers with shovels and they began to dig for all the bodies. They dug up the entire property, tilled it all, and the son wrote a letter a week later and said, Pop, that's the best I can do. <laughs> so I hope to till up some ground, and when we leave, we'll say, that's the best we can do, fellas, right? We're going to be looking at Joseph when he's in the pit, Joseph at the plantation, Joseph at the palace. And so in Genesis 37, we see as we open up, immediately Joseph's chronological age and his diligence in the family business. It says, now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. It's fascinating here, men, you who are fathers, that it says that this is the history of Jacob. And when it says this is the history of Jacob, it now chronological uh, gives a chronology of his son. Your life and your history is being lived through your kids, right, who you are. The Lord says that he will be merciful to a thousand generations of those who love him. And it's a prayer and a promise I pray for my kids and my grandchildren, praying for them, that they would have the faith that my grandmother, both my grandmothers, prayed me into the kingdom, kicking and screaming as a 19-year-old rebel. And the history of my family and the heritage, as I found out after I became a Christian, not before I was a Christian, but after I was a Christian, that even my great-grandmother, when my mom was pregnant, with me, her belly was, she was about eight months pregnant. My great-grandmother, a fiery Pentecostal gal, laid hands on my mom's stomach and prayed for the anointing of the Spirit of God upon my life while I was still in the womb. And I lived like hell for 19 years running from God. I wanted nothing to do with church, Jesus, nothing. But then when God radically saved me at the age of 19... My history began, but then I looked back and it was connected to this incredible line of godly people that had been handing down the faith. And all of us are a part of that. Even if you're the first generation to come to Christ, you're starting that process. You're starting that cycle. And it tells us that Joseph was 17 years old and he's the family business is their shepherds. So he's out there with the sons of Zilpah and Bilhah. You know that Jacob has four uh, wives. He's got Rachel and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah. Now, I know that some, oftentimes, we, we run into this in church, is now we live in a victim generation. They're just, you don't understand. I'm the adult child of an alcoholic. I come from a dysfunctional family. I'm like, who doesn't come from a dysfunctional family? Right? Join the club. Most of us came from a total dumpster fire, Right? My mom's been married four times. My dad's been married seven, uh, three, three times. There's seven marriages between the two of them. I got to write it out on a chart to explain it to my kids, right? I got stepbrothers and step, and it's like, here's the graph. These are those years. This is what happened here. And jo Joseph is coming from a family. Though they know God, they're pretty jacked up. I mean, they really are. Joseph can remember when his grandfather Laban ran his dad down 
and was going to do him harm. Grandpa came to kill dad. That happened to you lately? <laughs> and as soon as he got out of that scrape, it says, Uncle Esau, Uncle Harry's coming with 400 men to kill dad. Don't you think as a teenager you go, how come everybody wants to kill dad? Because he was a conniving snake. That's why everybody wanted to kill dad. Jacob was constantly the supplanter, the heel catcher, the one that was trying to trick and persuade. And he ran into his match, really, with Laban. But now as Joseph is 17 years of age, he's doing the family business, and his brothers are shirking their duty. They're not doing what they're supposed to. And you're going to know this from the very onset of Joseph's life. Whatever Joseph does, he does with excellence and diligence, and he gets promoted absolutely everywhere he goes. Everywhere he goes. And through this study, because of a room full of men, I want to ask you at each turn, hey, man, are you living a life in your vocation where you spend 40 to 60 hours a week? Are you promotable? Because you're going to see qualities in Joseph's life that just shine so bright. Now, he, dad's the boss, so he goes and says, hey, you know what? My brothers, these are his half-brothers, are, are not doing what's right. And he's very tuned in to the truth early on, the truth in love, no doubt, as he goes through life because he's not afraid of being straightforward in his processes if it means improving the situation. Now we see Joseph's dad in verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colors, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, first of all, if you are the tattletale, he's telling on his brothers in the previous passage, right? And now dad shows overt love towards him more so than his brothers. And he has 11 brothers. And I don't know, you know, I grew up in a family of four. And, and you never know where I, I grew up because I was kind of an unusual child and that my parents didn't want any more children and my dad got a vasectomy and about, you know, three months later my mom got pregnant. So my older three siblings, when they wanted to really break my heart, they called me the milkman's kid, which I didn't know what that meant <laughs> as a little kid. You're the milkman's kid. I'd go to my mom and say, who's the milkman and why am I his kid? She would smile and say, no, you're your father's son. <laughs> But, you know, you look in the photo album, and when you're the youngest of four, like the first child has albums of pictures, right? The second one has a few less. The third one, not so much. The fourth one, you've seen one, you've seen them all. Where's your pictures, Rick? Oh, there's a couple in there, right? As you are in a place with your family relationships, I know people that have just sobbed convulsively in my office in their 50s, because they still have not got their dad's love and affirmation. That's a powerful thing. And those 11 brothers, they saw that Jacob, giving him a special coat of many colors, or some say a coat with sleeves, which meant everybody else had sleeveless robes or tunics. And with the sleeves, it was a picture of he was heir apparent. His dad was going to give him who is the, uh, the 11th child among all the children, and he's going to be able to get two-thirds of the inheritance. 
and dad, his affection is so blatant about how much he loves him. And the others, they hated him for it. They hated him because he's telling on him at work. They hated it because he was shown overt love more than they were. And you got to wrap your heart around that, right? What if you can't control that? Some of you dread Thanksgiving every year because all the siblings come home and you know the golden child. So how do you wrap your heart around that? And I can either celebrate it and commit that issue of my heart to the Lord, or I can let it build resentment. And the beef that might grow up and be a wedge. Joseph's going to have to deal with that. Jacob doesn't help that. It's very unwise. And I would just encourage you fathers, do whatever you can to show affection for each one of your kids so that they know you have a unique love and relationship for them. Because, you know, if you're an athlete like me, and one of your, your, your kids loves to play ball, that's really easy, right? And then one of them wants to play the clarinet. I mean, what? I mean, do you connect with that? You may not, but you have to figure out. You have to go into that world. You have to enter that world to love them and show them that. Now, Joseph's dream doesn't help anything. So he's telling on the brothers. His dad loves him more than the rest of the brothers. And then he tells them dreams they're all going to bow down to him. Now, this is either naivety on his part that he doesn't think his brothers are going to kill him on the spot, or he's kind of rubbing it in their face. I'm not sure which. Most preachers try to sanitize Joseph as if he, he's not a fallen human like us. Joseph's a man just like us, right? All, all the characters of the Bible, they're just like us apart from Jesus. And so we're not sure which, but in verse 5, now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more as if he needed more hatred flowing his way. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, you and I, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more. Now, wait a second. I thought they already hated him even, yeah, even more and more for his dreams and for his words. Then he had another dream. It wasn't enough to poke him in the eye with one dream. He's got two for him. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, the 11 stars bowed down to me. So... He told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Jacob rebukes him in a patriarchal society because his dream is 11 stars, brothers going to bow down, the sun, that would be dad, the moon, mom, and so this picture, he rebukes him, but he keeps it in his heart because you see God had done supernatural things in Jacob's life. So he understood God was doing something special in his son's life. But his brothers now it turns to envy. It's one thing to hate, but envy is the feeling of deep displeasure at the blessing of another. Isn't that strange? You know somebody, good friend of yours, they just got the killer deal over the century on a house. And they come to you and they're raving, man, you should see this place. They get the brand new job. They get the brand new car. They get the hot wife. 
whatever it is. And in your heart, you smile because they're your friend or they're your relative, and you want to rejoice. You know the right thing is to celebrate them, but inside you just feel this sick displeasure at the blessing of another. I'm sure that's never happened to you. It happens to people in Wisconsin or something, right? But the reality is, is that humans, in our fallen nature, I, I find very few emotions that are tainted by sin to be as insidious as envy. Why should I feel an evil resentment towards another person because somehow they're blessed and I'm not? Shouldn't I want the best for them? Right? The Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know, when people rejoice around us, inward we're weeping because that's how come they get that blessing? How come they get, you know, every time they just stumble, they just trip over gold. They just seem to just, they get everything. Why is, I don't get anything. And you have your little pity party. But then when they weep and they're actually going through a hardship now, you try to be compassionate on the outside, but inside your fallen nature, you go, in your mind, you're like, it's about time. Yeah, it's, a, it's about time they got their comeuppance. Nobody's life can be that good. And so on the outside, you're very compassionate, but on the inside, you're kind of rejoicing just a little bit. You see, the fallen human nature is really wicked. I discovered very early on that there were friends I could rejoice with about certain things that would actually rejoice with me. And then there were people that I absolutely never wanted to share a blessing because they seemed to turn, they seemed to get this weird, bitter root towards me about it. So Joseph's brothers are envying him. They're hating him even more and more. And so now the day comes, and for the sake of our time here tonight, in verse 12 through 17, Jacob sends Joseph to go check on the brothers. He's his eyes and his ears in the family business. The brothers are out there. They have to be nomadic and take the, the herds around. So he's out there looking. But now we see Joseph's distance because what was the safety net for Joseph? Even though his brothers hated him, they couldn't speak a peaceable word. They were envious of him. As long as he was in camp next to Pop, right, nothing's going to happen to Joseph. But this is what you're going to see in Joseph's life now, starting from this moment. And now this is a little bit, either dad's totally out of touch. Are you in touch with what's going on with your kids? You checking out their Facebook posts? You checking out their, their Instagram? You checking out their whatever they're doing? I mean, you can't, it's hard to do a Snapchat because it's bam, boom, it's gone. But the reality is, are you in tune with what's going on among your kids? It, either Jacob is just oblivious to know the animosity and the hostility towards his boy Joseph from the other brothers, because he sends him now a long ways away from safety. Now, for God to do what God wants to do in Joseph's life, and for God to get Joseph where he wants to get him in life, he now has to strip away all the safety net of dad and family and his people, and he has to get him all alone to do all that he wants to do in his life. You will find sometimes in your life that God is stripping away and you're distanced from everybody else. It's almost, we see the same thing happen in, in King David's life. God anoints him and then God begins to strip away everything from his life to where now he's a man without a country because Saul's constantly chasing him and trying to kill him. So the distance 
creates an opportunity for you and you alone to forge an intimate relationship with the God of the universe yourself. It's no longer your father's faith. It's not your mother's faith. It's not your sibling's faith. It's not your church community. God has stripped it away, and maybe you're in another community, but God oftentimes strips all the stuff that we've been leaning on. We don't even realize how much we're leaning on stuff until it's all stripped away. Joseph's distance and the inability for his father to rescue him or protect him gave God the opportunity to do exactly what he wanted to do. But God was going to allow it in his sovereignty through the wicked hearts of his brothers. It says in verse 18, Now when they saw him afar off, his brothers, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Now we got in some knockdown, drag out fights with four of us in our family, but I never ever considered killing a sibling. I don't know about you. The brothers are actually conspiring. Now, this could be because there's so many brothers. You've heard the adage, if you have one boy, you have one brain. You have two boys, you have a half a brain. You have three boys, you have no brains at all. <laughs> right? That's the way it works. It's a compounding element. It's, it works exponentially. And so they have ten boys because Benjamin's back home. Verse 19, then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into the pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. They sat down to eat a meal. Very casually, murder plot for your little brother. Just an average everyday thing, right? They want to kill their little brother. They already got a plan. We'll just say a wild beast killed him. We're a long ways from home. This distance, dad's not around. And they're going to kill a goat at the end of this story and spread blood all over it and show it to Jacob. They're going to kind of shred it a little bit so it looks like a lion or a bear killed him. And they got a plan. So they throw him into the pit. Now, when you show up among your brothers and the first thing they do is attack you, rough you up and rip your clothes off and throw you into a pit to where you can't get out. And then you're down there crying and screaming for help and they're up there just having lunch. And that, just process the kind of abuse that his brothers put him through. You know, there's a lot of garbage that we can go through in our life from other people. But God can use it to do a work in us. It's a fascinating thing to me that God would use these brothers' hatred and envy and murderous hearts to get him from point A to point B, which is going to be Egypt. That's where God wants him to go. Because you see it says in Psalm 76.10, the wrath of man, God can make even the wrath of man to please him. He, it means that he can take man's wrath, he can take the crookedness of a man's heart, 
and draw a straight line through that crooked man, a straight line to get a person from point A to point B. So oftentimes, God can use evil individuals with evil intentions, envy and hatred and murder in their hearts to push us a direction that we would have never went before. Push us out of this job. And here you are, resentful, six months later after you got fired from this job. God just set you three to get you where he wants you. Right? He's taking you over there. Yeah, but they're evil. And they're, you know, well, they might be. God can draw a straight line in his will from a crooked stick so God can get it done. So you just embrace it. At every turn, you got a choice to say, you know what? I didn't see that coming. Whoa. <laughs> that was a surprise. Let's see what you have for me now, Lord. Let's see where you will take me. Now we see Joseph's devastation in verse 25. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with his, their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, now, you remember, Reuben is the oldest. He actually had a plan to come back and save Joseph. The brothers wanted to kill him. He's like, no, no, let's just throw him in a pit. And he wanted to, you know, wait and come back in the night or whatever he wanted to do, come back and get him. But now Judah... Verse 26, so Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hands be upon him. For he is our brother in our flesh and his brothers listened. <laughs> Judah's like, I'm a good Jewish boy. Let's make some cash. <laughs> this is a business deal, right? Let's make some money, guys. Well, you know, if we kill him, we're, we're not going to be any richer. But if we sell him, you know, we'll be richer. It'll be a good thing. Verse 28, then the Midianites traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit. And indeed, Joseph was not in the pit. And he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and said, the lad is no more. And I, where shall I go? He really sincerely wanted to rescue Joseph from the hatred of his brothers. But he was unable to do it. And... He's really brokenhearted. You'll see here, as we move through the story, 22 years later, Reuben's still saying, I told you so, I told you you shouldn't have done that. But imagine, I mean, you know, we can just cruise through this story, but just let yourself get in the sandals of Joseph. Feel the, the chains on his hands and his ankles. Psalm 105 talks of this moment and says in Verse 17 of that chapter, he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters, and he was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The Lord was testing Joseph. He was preparing Joseph. He was getting him to the place. And Joseph is going to go through the biggest nightmare for 13 years because our story starts when he's 17 years old. And he gets out of prison at the age of 30. 13 years of difficulty, of hardship. We go through 13 days, you know, 13 months of hardship, and we're devastated. No, 13 years. The same thing happened to David. David, we believe, was about 15 or 16 when he faced Goliath, but he was anointed by the Lord 
prior to that by the Spirit of the Lord and by Samuel the prophet, and then he became king at 30. So why is God doing this work from 15 to 30, in Joseph's life from 17 to 30? Why is John the Baptist step on the scene at the age of 30 and start his ministry to prepare the way of the Lord? Why does Jesus, six months later, because they're only six months apart, they're cousins, step on the scene at the age of 30? Because God is forging and creating and working by the grace of God in a heart of a young man in their teenage years that know the Lord as they're headed towards that place. The most effective years of your life and your calling and your usefulness is from 30 to 60 years of age. These men have to be prepared. Now, we have this terrible thing called delayed adolescence in America. In the Jewish culture, age, you know, 13, you're a, you're a man. It's a bar mitzvah. You're a son of the law. The dynamic of Joseph's life to move forward is beyond his control. It's beyond his ability to throw the brakes on and say, no, I'm not doing that, because he goes literally in chains to the destination that God has for him. That's a crazy thing, right? That's, uh, most of us don't want chains to be a part of our future. But some of us, chains were a part of how God got a hold of our hearts. For me, I, I was in trouble with the law all the time. And I got sick of the law. And I was on probation at the age, uh, in the third grade. How do you even get on probation in third grade? Well, you start a wildfire and burn up a lot of people's stuff. That's what you do. And busted for grand larceny at 15. I was suspended from school in seventh grade, in eighth grade, in ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade, every year for some stupid antics of what I was doing. And the last time I, I well, not the last time, I guess, uh, but my, wife, my girlfriend, her dad was the sergeant of our local police department, so it was a bad mix. Bad boy dating cop's daughter. It's not a good combination. So when I got on the cruise, these guys were mouthing off, and so I jumped out and I got in a fight with three guys. And I knocked the first one down and had the second one over the hood, giving him some information. <clears throat> and then I was grabbed from behind, and I thought it was the third guy, but the third guy had run. And I was grabbed from behind, so I swung around to hit the third guy, and it was a cop. And my hand stopped short of his face, and he spun me around and put the handcuffs on me. And I'm like, I'm sorry, officer, I, I, I didn't know you were a cop. I didn't know whatever. Well, the guy was beaten up on the hood, jumped off the hood, and punched me in the face because my hands were handcuffed now. So I squatted down, and I leapt, and I headbutted him in the head as hard as I could. And then the cop showed me how handcuffs can work. They can cinch them down until you want to cry. And they, get, they just start jerking the chain, and they've smashed it on your wrist. <laughs> yes, sir, yes, sir. I mean, you're on your tiptoes. You know, and he's throwing me in the back of the squad car. And I couldn't help, but it just dawned on me when I hit the backseat of that squad car. Is my girlfriend's dad on duty tonight? And so I asked the officer, I said, Officer, is Sergeant David, or Davis, the, the, 
this sergeant tonight? And he goes, no, Brown, you got a free pass tonight. And then I was more stunned because I've never met this cop and he knows my name. And so Tammy's dad had the cops watching for me. She, he was trying to get rid of me the best he could. And I understand, I wouldn't want somebody like me coming around, right, for their one and only daughter. After our 25th anniversary, I took my in-laws out to dinner, my wife, and my father-in-law said to me, he said, do you know what I said on the day that you married Tammy? I said, well, it's been 25 years, I think I can handle it. He said, I put my hands on the bathroom vanity and I got really close to the mirror, and I said, what did you do to deserve this, Ron Davis? And he was talking about me. <laughs> Obviously, Jesus changed my life, and now they're like my folks too, and Tammy and I have been married 36 years. But the, the issue of chains and the law, the Bible says the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And it, it brought me to, I was so sick of getting in trouble with the law the last time we had to, you know, I had to do my first stint in county jail when I was 15 for the grand larceny, and I got those big orange coveralls, and I'm like, you know, five, six, and they're, they're rolled up, and it, it's not a good look, right, the whole orange coverall thing. But one thing after another, and the Lord uses things to bring us to the place that we look up. And all the way through this, Joseph only has one hope. He can't look back as, at his dad to rescue him, though he might think he's coming. And he doesn't know what's in front of him. And he knows how his brothers feel about him. Well, the brothers have to now cover up this conspiracy. And they put Joseph's picture on a milk box to make it official. Right? Milk carton. Joseph's disappearance in verse 31. So Joseph took... Uh, excuse me, so they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. The siblings, the brothers, now covering this up, lying to dad, and then watching dad. Now, if you're, if you're living in kind of a a tent village type of dynamic like these nomads were, and dad's depressed every single day, and it goes on for days and weeks and months, and the brothers have to, you know, carry that guilt of seeing their dad so devastated day after day after day. Man, it has to start wearing on them, no doubt. You know, the Bible says of the children of Israel, when he gave them their own way, you know what, you can make a decision to take revenge or to pursue that, that resentment and somehow get even. But the results afterwards, very much like the children of Israel, he gave them their request but set leanness into their soul. They had the freedom to do it because, no doubt, many of them have to be thinking, hey, should we do this to our brother? Come on now. Right? I don't know if we should do this. We hear our brother crying. We see him going off you know, with the Midianite traders. 
And there's a lot of similarities to Joseph and the Lord Jesus all the way through the story, right? It's Jesus' brothers. He's betrayed by Judas, one of his 12, right, the disciples, for 30 pieces of silver, not 20 pieces of silver. And as we go all the way through this, Joseph is going to be the picture as the savior of an entire region of the world because of the wisdom that God gives to him, just as Jesus came to be the savior of the world. But all of this, when he finally arrives at his destination in verse 36, now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. This guy's a heavy hitter in Pharaoh's palace as the uh, captain of the guard, or we would say the secret service. Like anybody messes around, they get, there's a special prison that they get put into. And he's a wealthy man, as we'll see when we look at our study tomorrow. But he ends up in Egypt, long ways from home, speaking a different language, has to learn a new language, new customs, new cultures. They worship foreign gods. Imagine getting carted away at the age of 17 and just being dropped into a foreign world, but you're a slave. You know, the... uh, the human trafficking that's happening right now in the world is off the charts. It's unbelievable. I spent time with Shannon Grove, who's a uh, representative, a state representative in Sacramento. And she was trying to get human trafficking laws dealt with here in California because of the human trafficking. She, because of her position in the, uh, at Sacramento, she presented a bill rescuing to rescue these kids that are in human trafficking. They had identified a specific warehouse in a specific district in San Francisco where a lot of these kids are that are being human trafficked. It's known. And so obviously she's a conservative person that wants to rescue them, but nobody on the progressive left would vote for it. She tried to talk to some of the representatives the person that represented that specific area in San Francisco, she went to talk to this representative, and he said, oh, we've known about that warehouse and those people for a long time. We're not going to do anything about it. Here's a government leader of the state that is not willing to step in and rescue those who are being human trafficked. Imagine these people that they end up in a, a country, they don't know anybody, They got there in handcuffs or chains or drugged or whatever it was, and they just end up there. When they end up there, wherever they're at, they're going to have to make a choice. How am I going to move forward with life, right? How am I going to move forward with life? What kind of decision am I going to make? What, What can I control? If I can't control, Joseph can't control now the country he lives in, the language is a different language. There in Egypt, he's a, he's a slave. He has to just do what he's told. And his boss is a powerful man at Pharaoh's right hand. So he can be resentful, be a lousy slave, right? He can, he, he can be bitter about this. He can cry. He can try to escape. I mean, there's a lot of stuff he can try to do. But what we're going to see about Joseph is he says, well, this is the th- reasoning that must have went through his mind. 
well, God's given, given me these amazing dreams. And God's going to do this. I believe this in my heart. You see, Joseph did not have Romans 8.28 in a Bible for him. He has no Bible. What Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what they had is God supernaturally spoke to them. They had no verses of Scripture. They only had what God spoke to them. And God had revealed to him a dream. He had put a dream in Joseph's heart that by faith, this was God's promise to Joseph. And it appears that he never let go of it. And he said, well, God's put these dreams in my heart. I'm going to trust God even though all of this has happened. I might as well prosper right here where I'm planted. I, I might as well grow right here. We so often are going through life trying to get out of our circumstance, aren't we? Some of you are trying to get out of your job right now. I want out of this job. I want out of this situation. And you can pray and you can look. I mean, the Bible says if you, you know, seek, you'll find. If you ask, you'll receive. If you knock, the door will be open unto you. There's nothing wrong with that. But until God changes your circumstance, you have to just grow and prosper and be the best version of you right where you're at. And if it's not going good, it's not necessarily the boss's fault. He might be an idiot. He might be. I've had some of those. I've had crooked bosses, evil bosses, uh, criminal bosses. I've had all kinds of, you know, strange things in my life because I came from construction and various dynamic in life. But the thing is, is that no matter where you're at, just grow right now where you're at. Because it is going to be, give you the best opportunity to prepare. You know, a lot of people say, oh, they just got this job. It was good luck or whatever. No. Have you discovered that good luck is patient preparation that meets opportunity? That's good luck. You have been patient where you're at. You've been faithful where you're at. You've been diligent. You've been pre preparing. And Joseph was preparing in his father's house. And he's preparing... <laughs> Uh, he's going to be preparing here in Potiphar's um, household for what God has for him. Everything you're doing right now is preparation for what God has for you in your future. So don't despise the days of small beginnings where your position is now because God is preparing you in faithfulness and all those things you need to learn. I came home years ago. Uh, I was just thinking about this because my son called me when I was at the airport in LAX flying up here today. He said, hey, Dad, I, I knew you were going to be in San Jose this week. And uh, I heard about the retreat, so I got on the website. and He's up in Oakland. And uh, I wanted to come down, but it's a little far from San Jose, so maybe I'll just come to the church service. But when my son, who grew up in the Lord, when he was 17... I came home, and he, had, he broke his uh, ankle um, on his 17th birthday. He was in a cast. He was at home. And I came home. My wife and I had been gone for a ministry trip. And we got home, and it was, it was three days. And he's already a tall, skinny kid, and he looked even more skinny. I said, you all right, son? Are you sick? And he goes, no, Dad, I've been fasting for three days with, with you being gone. And he's 17. I've been fasting for three days and praying. And I said, well, what are you praying about? He said, well, I'm praying, Lord, do you want me to be a missionary? Or do you want me to get a good job and help people in ministry? He said, that's what I'm wrestling with. And do you want me, if I'm going to be a missionary, I would probably, I think I'd want to be single. It's too hard out there. 
So, God, do you want me to be single or married? And do you want me to be a missionary or have a good job? And I said, well, is the Lord talking to you yet? And he goes, no, I haven't gotten an answer yet, Dad. But uh, so did I keep fasting? I'm looking at him. He's like, literally, I can see through you. Let's stop the fasting right now. You know, three days with your skinny, skinny body. And I said, for me, when I fast and pray, the answer is delayed and comes in the next days or the weeks or the months. And in the next couple of weeks, he realized that he wanted to become a pilot and he wanted to uh, marry his best friend, this gal that was in the youth group. So at 17, all the preparation that God was doing in his life to get him to that place, he was running our church facility. So we had a 27-acre campus, which is like a small farm. It's very big. And, and to keep all the weeds down and all the trees plant, watered and all the lawn. And he, had a, he, had a, he was in charge of the whole ground, so he had a crew underneath him at the age of 17. And uh, I, I pulled in, and my son's super diligent. Like, everything he does is just, like, very well done. He finishes really strong. And I pulled into the parking lot, and there's this narrow strip of grass that was missed in the front, something my son wouldn't do. So I asked him, I said, son, I, he goes, oh, you see the strip when you pulled in? I said, yeah, I did. He goes, well, dad, you know when I was nine years old and you taught me how to mow the lawn? I said, yeah. Remember when I left that strip in the yard? And I said, yeah. And what'd you do? Well, I told you what a great job you did. And I was not going to, you know, make a big deal over that one strip. And he said, I decided that to do that with them in their training. He said, they missed this strip, and rather than make a big deal, I told them they did a great job, and I'll go take care of the strip. But through everything that he was doing in faithfulness and becoming a pilot, now he flies Boeing 767s internationally for FedEx. He's 33 years old. His domicile's in Oakland. They fly him to Singapore, and then he flies in Asia for 10 days, and then they fly him back to the United States. But I watched this young Joseph, and as Joseph was um, also very, very handsome, my son's super good looking, looks just like his mom, and, and that can be a problem <laughs> for him and as, for Joseph, as we're going to see. Him and I got on an airplane one day, and I could tell when, when the ticket agent looked up at my son, we were buying these plane tickets, she looked up at my, she got flustered because she was so struck by how handsome he was. And when we got on the plane, she sent one of those guys in the, the fluorescent jackets, and he's got the headphones. She sent him on the plane with her number <laughs> to, to give to my son. I'd never seen something like that before. And <laughs> it's, it's been a little, uh, you know, a little challenging for him. But the reality is I look at his life because I can observe it from youth all the way to where he's at now. And God has been leading and directing and forging his life all the way through this process. And sometimes we can believe it for a Joseph, and I can believe it for my son, but sometimes we can't believe it for ourselves. Sometimes we think, yeah, that works in their life, but I don't know what God's doing in my life. But the reality is, when you look at just being fruitful where you're at, everything else just starts to drop away because you're just, worried, you're just gonna be faithful and pursue excellence and prosper right where, you have, where God has you. And if there's no other lesson that you learn from the life of Joseph, learn this, that Joseph was fruitful 
You want to put him in the family business, he's going to run the show. You put him in jail, he's going to run the show. You put him in Potiphar's house, he's going to run the show. You put him in Egypt, he's going to run the show. But all those things were stepping stones to preparing for that day. God is preparing you for whatever he has in front of you. And I'm not saying it's some grandiose thing. I'm just saying he's preparing you for the next thing and the next thing in your life. For some of us here, you might be hurting over some injustice. Could anything be any more unjust than your brothers throwing you in a pit and selling you to slavery? Your own brothers, your own flesh and blood. And the resentment that that can bear in somebody's life. You know, some people never recover from something like that. Some people never recover. They become this bitter, they, every time you want to talk to them and they're in an emotional state, they always take you back to that place of hurt. They take you back to that job that, you know, where you were unjustly fired. They take you back to that, you know, the woman that walked out on, on you or whatever. You know what? Life is filled with sin and brokenness. But nobody, nobody can take away my free will to choose faith in a God who loves me and has a plan for me. I don't care how bad it is. Nobody can take that from me. And that's the only thing that can't be taken from you. You can lose your job. You can lose your house. You can lose lots of stuff. But how you respond to it, nobody can take that from you. And some of us have not had an extremely fruitful life in our souls because our personality is such we dwell on the injustices of life. And let me tell you, there's plenty to go around. You don't have to look far for it, right? You don't have to look far for it. And that's what you've been dwelling on. Well, nobody can help you move on. If you're stuck, it's because you haven't flipped the switch of faith to let that go and to move forward by faith in God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for this example of Joseph. We thank you for that you would have a word fitly spoken like apples of gold and settings of silver for each and every heart that is here this weekend. Lord, you have a word. We're, we're just open to what your spirit wants to say to us, what your word wants to say to us. Lord, you said these things were written for our admonition. They were written for our learning, they're written to teach us as wonderful examples. So teach us this weekend, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. I see the light in the darkness, I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, 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 whoa. And I won't worry about tomorrow or fear in times of trouble. I keep my heart seeking. I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, 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 
keep my heart seeking you I will keep my heart seeking